All right, if you would, go ahead and turn your, open your Bibles, 2 Peter chapter 2, as we're continuing our study through the book of 2 Peter, looking at how we are to prepare for persecution. And last week we started chapter 2, uh, when really uh, the vast majority of chapter 2 uh, is, is about false teachers, but I, I want to take a little bit of a break from that and and and. And study verses four through nine here tonight, um, and, and it's it's just a, a really amazing little little passage of of scripture uh, tucked away in this this huge chapter about about false teaching, and really the focus for what we're going to be studying is is verse number nine. Um, but but let's go ahead and and, and stand uh, in the honor of the reading of the word of God, uh, and we'll read Second Peter chapter two verses four through nine. The Word of God says in in verse number 4, For if God spared not the angels that sinned, but cast them down to hell, and delivered them into chains of darkness to be reserved unto judgment, and spared not the old world, but saved Noah, the eighth person, a preacher of righteousness, bringing in the flood upon the world of the ungodly, and turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah into ashes, condemned them with an overthrow, making them an ensample unto those that after should live ungodly. And delivered just Lot, vexed with the filthy conversation of the wicked. For that righteous man dwelling among them in seeing and hearing, vexed his righteous soul from day to day with their unlawful deeds." And here, verse number nine here is, is really the, the focus of, of what I want to, want to talk about and preach about here tonight. Verse nine says, The Lord knoweth how to deliver the godly out of temptations and to rescue the unjust, or sorry, and to reserve the unjust unto the day of judgment to be punished. Let's pray and then we'll get started. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, I pray that you would empower me with the Holy Spirit to to preach these words truthfully, clearly. And God, I pray that you would use these words to change the hearts and the minds of the hearers today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I want to start tonight by telling you a personal story um, recently, my dad and I were installing a ceiling fan, and you know, I'll I'll be the first to tell you, neither of us are ceiling fan experts, um, and and we worked for hours, um, and every time, and, and this ceiling fan was one of the, the the design was poor from the get go, and you had to put together every single piece of the ceiling fan before you could figure out whether it worked or not. So we spent hours putting this together, and then the moment of truth would come, and we'd flip the switch, nothing. And then we'd take it all apart and try again, and we'd flip the switch, nothing. And we, and we went for hours, we put this thing together three or four times, and by that point I was getting pretty frustrated. I was sitting there thinking, I could be preparing for sermons right now, and instead I'm fooling with this silly ceiling fan. And, you know, what we ultimately realized is we had actually pulled a wire loose further up the chain um, of, than what we were connecting to, so no power was coming to the ceiling fan. Our connection was good, but further up the chain it was bad. 
But I think the ultimate problem that my dad and I had is that we were lacking in know-how. I'm confident that if, if, if there was a ceiling fan expert out there, they could have probably knocked this out of the park first try. If the guy who poorly designed this ceiling fan from the get-go, I think he could have probably figured it out. Uh, but my dad and I, we, we don't admit, we don't act like we're ceiling fan experts, but it seemed like an easy enough job to do. But ultimately, we did not have know-how. Know-how is something that you want, right? And in many areas of life, know-how is valuable. Think about it this way. If you're having car trouble, you want someone, you want a mechanic with some know-how. If you're renovating your home, you want a carpenter with some know-how. If you're having surgery... You want a doctor that has some know-how. And when I talk, what I, what I mean when I, when I talk about know-how, I'm going to define know-how as knowledge applied. That it is this combination of skill and experience. Right? So if you're having surgery, you want somebody who knows what they're doing, right? You, you don't want a surgeon who goes in there and he says, well, you know, I don't really know what I'm doing, but I'm sure we'll figure it out once we cut you open. Like that's not what you want when you have surgery. And you want somebody who's experienced. You don't want to go in and having surgery and say, well, this is the first time I've ever done this, but I'm sure it'll be fine. I'm going to say, get me another surgeon. So you want someone who has know-how. But I think know-how is something that is incredibly lacking in our day. I think we have kids who are graduating college with useless degrees and zero practical experience. We're graduating kids from college today with degrees in underwater basket weaving. It's really like theoretical underwater basket weaving. Like they've read a book about it, but they couldn't actually know how to do it. And there's so many people graduate with a liberal arts degree. What does that even mean? I don't know. They don't graduate with any know-how. They don't have that practical experience. They get out into the real world, they've got loads of debt, and they don't know how to do anything. It's a reality. This has even been true for me to some extent. I mean, I graduated with a chemistry degree from UVA Wise, but I didn't have any know-how. Right? I, I, I got to the chemical industry, I learned more in my first three months than I learned in four years in college. It's just a reality. Practical, practical experience, real know-how is valuable. It's even true when I got my master's degree at Liberty. I mean, yes, I have a master's degree in theological studies, but I've learned a lot more about theology behind this pulpit than I did when I was pursuing my theology degree. And I'm not saying that college is not important, but I'm just saying college doesn't equal know-how. So I think that's something that's very lacking in our day. But there are some areas in life, some very important areas in life, where know-how is essential. There are some things in life where you absolutely need know-how. Some of those things are important, right? I mean, like... You know, car trouble, a carpenter, school, surgery. Some of those things are important. But there are even bigger areas of life where we need know-how. There are some big questions in life that we need answered. Think about this. How can you be made right with God? That's a big question in life that we need answered. What can you do about your sin? That's a big question in life that we need answered. How can you enter into heaven when you die? Big question, needs an answer. Will people be punished for their wickedness? Big question, needs an answer. 
And when we go to these big questions, we, so we ultimately need a God who has know-how. A God who has the knowledge. A God who has the experience to answer these types of questions. These big questions in life. And I want to tell you tonight, the God of the Bible knows how. The God of the Bible knows how to answer these big boy questions in life. The Lord knows how. And when we say knows how, when we say that God knows, that speaks to his divine wisdom. That God is not sitting in heaven wondering how, how is he going to turn this crazy world around? No! God is calmly seated on his throne in full control of everything. He knows everything that has happened. He knows everything that is happening. And he knows everything that will happen. He isn't caught off guard by a single thing. God is a God of divine wisdom. He knows. And he doesn't just know, but he knows how. This speaks to his divine plan. So when we say God has know-how, he has divine wisdom, and he has a divine plan. So God not only knows what to do, but he knows how to do it. That God has a plan set in forth before the foundations of the world. God has a plan. God's not like these other gods out there. I mean, they can't answer these questions, these big boy questions, these little G gods. They can't do it. And they haven't ever saved anyone. So they don't have the knowledge and they don't have the experience. They don't have the wisdom. They don't have the plan. We can trust our God because he has know-how. And I think this is incredibly important as we consider our series that we're going through, preparing for persecution. Because when persecution comes, we are going to need a God with know-how. We are going to be, need to be able to rely upon this God when times get hard. We need a God who knows what to do and knows how to do it. It will be so important for us to be able to trust God when hard times come. But praise be to God that the Lord knows how. So we're going to, I only have two points for you tonight. And since we're taking the Lord's table, I'm going to try to keep it under 45 minutes. So a quick sermon. Most of our verses we covered last week, so it should be fast. Um, so I've only got two points for you. Two things that the Lord knows how to do. They don't, they're not the same letter. They don't rhyme. But they're straightforward enough that anybody can take these two points home. The Lord knows how to save and the Lord knows how to judge. Those are our two f- points tonight. So let, let's look at the first one. The Lord knows how to save. God has not forgotten how to rescue the godly. Verse number nine, uh, let, let's look at it, because we're going to see here, God is going to make a statement in, a, in, in our passage here tonight, and he's going to give us three examples, uh, whether he, in, in his example of how to save and his example of how to judge, he's going to make the statement and he's going to give us three examples. So let's look at this statement. Verse number nine, it says, the Lord knoweth how to deliver the godly out of temptation. So God knows how to deliver. This word deliver here, it means to rescue, to free, to save. 
What this is teaching us and what this is telling us is that God delivers his people before the judgment falls. And I think we can think of this deliverance in three ways. I think that there is a past uh, aspect to this deliverance. I think there's a present aspect to this deliverance. And I think there is a future aspect to this deliverance. 2 Corinthians chapter 1 verse 10 tells us of that. 2 Corinthians chapter 1 verse 10 says, Who delivered us, past tense, from so great a death, that should be familiar to you from this morning, and so that's the past tense, continuing on, and doth deliver, present tense, or is delivering, and then, and then the second... The final part here, in whom we trust that he will yet deliver us, future tense. So the Bible teaches us that there is a past, present, and future deliverance from God. And I think we know that to be true. In salvation, if you are saved here today, God has delivered you. In saving you, God has delivered you. And if he has kept you safe here today, God is presently delivering us today in keeping us safe. And then we also look to God to deliver us from the wickedness of the world in the future. The future tense. This is like uh, Matthew uh, 6 in, in the Lord's Prayer where it says, deliver us from evil. We're praying that God will deliver us from evil in the future. So whether it is in the past, whether it is in the present, whether it's in the future, God knows how to deliver us. And, you know, there's a song in our hymnal. I was tempted to sing it tonight. It's called He Knows How. And we've actually, we've sung it here a long time ago. Um, and so I was, I had it in the back of my mind. I was like, hey, you know, we've got a, we've got a song for that. And then I read the song. And, you know, I looked at the lyrics and kind of the punchline of the chorus is, Jesus keeps me happy for he knows how. And I'm like, hey, you know, that's true. It's true. But Jesus knows how to do much more than just keep me happy. I, but, you know, I think that's what people want today. Uh, people today would love that song. We should, we should probably sing it more. We'd get all kinds of, wow, what a great song we sung this morning. Um, right, that's what people want, right? They want to be happy. They want to be affirmed. They want to be comfortable, right? Jesus, I want you to keep me happy. I hope that's not what you're looking for in a Savior, because Jesus can do so much more than just keeping you happy. You need a Savior that can save you. Amen. You need a Savior that can rescue you, that can free you, that can deliver you. That's what you need. You need a Savior that knows how to deliver you from an evil world. That is what the Lord knows how to do here in 2 Peter 2. The Lord knows how to deliver and it says that the Lord knows how to deliver the godly. So God isn't saving everyone. He's saving his people here. So, you know, some people may ask the question, well, does that mean that I need to be godly in order to be saved? No, 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 no. Let's get this right. Godliness is only attained through salvation. That in order to be godly, in order to pursue godliness, you must first be saved. That's what, that's what this is teaching us. It's, it's teaching us that they're, that they're one and the same. The people who are saved are pursuing godliness. That's why they're called the godly. And you say, well, save us from what? 
Well, it says here in verse number nine, the Lord knows how to deliver the godly out of temptations. You say, that's interesting. Does that mean that God's people will never encounter temptations in their lives? No, no, I don't think that that's what this is teaching. But I do think that this is saying that God will keep um, his people from falling into temptations. And what I mean when I say falling into temptations is this perpetual sin. I think God is keeping his people from falling into perpetual sin, sin that happens over and over and over again. God is is keeping his people from becoming just like the rest of the world. This isn't saying that you won't fall into sin, but will not that you will not fall into perpetual sin. God will either keep you from falling into perpetual sin, clean you up out of perpetual sin, or take you out of it completely. God will not allow His people to fall into temptations. You say, how do you know that? Because the Bible says that. The Lord knows how to deliver the godly out of temptations. So that's the statement. Now look at, let's look at the examples, because God gives us three examples here. Again, a lot of these examples are for last week, so we won't, we won't spend a great deal of, of time on them, but I do want to, to point them out in this light, because they're important for us to know and to understand. The first example he gives us is in verse number five. And he talks about Noah. He says, and spared not the old world, but saved Noah, the eighth person, a preacher of righteousness, bringing in the flood upon uh, the world of the ungodly. So as you know, and as we mentioned last week, uh, God saved Noah and he flooded the whole world. The whole world was full of wickedness. God brought about judgment upon the world and he saved Noah and, and, and eight people there in the ark. But I think when we think about this and we consider this, we see God's know-how at work in the salvation of Noah. God, in saving Noah, used means beyond our understanding. I mean, who would have considered? Who would have have had that divine wisdom and divine plan to flood the whole world in bringing about judgment and to save Noah in a giant boat? It's the divine wisdom and knowledge and know-how of God that God used the ark as the instrument of salvation for Noah. And not just Noah, but God knows what we need for salvation as well. God knows what our instrument of salvation needs to be as well. God knows that we needed the perfect and the sinless Lamb of God to come and to take away the sin of the world. God knew what we needed. God knew that we didn't need help out of our sin, but we needed salvation from our sin. Salvation from the wrath of God. God knew what we needed and God had a plan. God has always had a plan on how to save His people. God knows how to save. And I think it's interesting here that Noah is described to us as a preacher of righteousness. Now, I don't think it's a surprise that Noah was, was, is referred to as righteous, right? I think we know from the Old Testament that Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Uh, that's, that's what the Old Testament tells us. And we know that Noah took a stand uh, when all the world around him was evil. Noah took a stand and he did something outrageous and outlandish in building this giant boat 
Right? That when all the world around him was evil and was wicked, Noah was righteous. Noah was following after God. But I think the surprising part here, maybe to some, is that Noah is referred to as a preacher. We don't necessarily see that out of Noah in the Old Testament, at least not directly. And I'll be honest, commentators are somewhat divided over what this means. Now, some people would say that Noah was a preacher, and that just was, isn't explicitly called out to us in the Old Testament. Others say that Noah was preaching by example, um, that he wasn't really a preacher, uh, but his, his, his righteous life. The life that he lived and, and the things that he did, that was his sermon. I probably lean toward the first one. Although I would say there's a little bit of both of these that are true, right? I think that Noah did live a righteous life. And I think that other people around him would see what he was doing. But I think more than that, I think he preached to the people around him. Because consider this and think about this in your head. I think you could imagine that as Noah is building this ark, there are all these people coming up to him and saying, Hey, Noah, what you doing? That's an awfully big boat you're building. We've never even seen rain before. What are you going to do with that boat? And I don't think that Noah would say, you know, leave me alone. I'm building my boat. I, I, I can imagine that Noah was probably very open to say, this is why I'm building this boat. Because God is bringing upon judgment. Repent. Turn, turn from your wicked ways. Um, so I think he would answer and he would preach to them. So I, I agree with what the Bible says. That Noah was a preacher of righteousness. So that's our first example. God knew how to save Noah. That last part was just a little sidebar. But um, it's still good. We got we to gotta, gotta get those little nuggets out of here. Example number two. And the second example we're given is, is Lot in verses 6 through 8. It says in verse number 6 that, And turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah into ashes, condemned them with an overthrow, making them an example unto those that after should live ungodly, and delivered just Lot, vexed with the filthy conversation of the wicked. For that righteous man, speaking of Lot, dwelling among them in seeing and hearing, vexed his righteous soul from day to day with their unlawful deeds. So God also delivered, God also saved Lot. Just as, he, just as God knew how to save Noah, God knew also how to save Lot. And it says to us here that Lot was also a righteous man just like Noah. Now, if you know anything about the Old Testament, you might be saying, wow, that's a little bit of a shocker because we've heard about Lot. And I think you could argue that Lot is a lot less righteous than Noah, at least what we get in the Old Testament. Actually, some would say Lot is a little bit of the opposite of Noah. Consider this. Lot was not an, an, an example uh, like Noah was. He was unwilling to take a stand. Uh, he was hesitant to follow God's guidance. He lived in a very wicked place. He made some incredibly questionable decisions when he offered his, his daughters up uh, to the men who were trying to rape the angels instead. It's a pretty questionable decision. Um, he resisted godly direction. When the angels tried uh, to, to remove Lot from the city, he did not go instantly. The angels had to end up dragging him out of, of the city. 
Yet in the end, God still saved him. I think that's amazing. Um, that, that, that even though we have two very different people, God still knows how to save. Amen. And I think that we are probably a lot more like Lot than we are like Noah. I think we want to be like Noah, right? We want to take a stand in the midst of an evil and a wicked world. But I think deep down, we're probably a lot more like Lot. We're sometimes people who are not the best example. Sometimes people who are unwilling to take a stand, hesitant to follow God's guidance, living in a wicked place, making questionable decisions, resisting godly direction. I fear that we are a lot more like Lot than like Noah. But praise be to God that God knew how to save sinners like Lot. And praise be to God that God knows how to save sinners like you and like me. That even though we might be like Lot, God still knows how to save us. Lot's salvation shows God's unmerited favor toward sinners. Lot is an example of how our righteousness is not based upon our own merits. If you just looked at the merits of Lot, he might not make it in. But salvation is totally and completely based upon the grace of God. That's how Lot made it in. And that's how we'll make it in. But it does say of Lot here, to his defense, and I'm not trying to gang up on, on Lot here, it does tell us that in verse 7 and in verse 8, that Lot was, maybe not outwardly, but at least inwardly, Lot was vexed with filthy conversation. And his, his righteous soul was vexed from day to day with their unlawful deeds. That vexed there, it means to be worn down, to be tormented. That maybe Lot didn't take the outward stand like Noah did in building the ark. But his, 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 his heart was still righteous at the, very, at the very foundation. And that he still burned. He was, he was worn down. He was tormented by the unrighteousness that was around him. Are you like Lot in that way? I mean, I'm not telling you to be like Lot in the outward ways. That's not, by, that's not my encouragement. That's not my exhortation. Do not give your daughters up to the world. But are you like Lot in the inward way? When you see the world around you, does it torment you? Does it do a work in, in your heart and, and in your soul? What about our churches today? Are they more like Lot or are they more like the people of Sodom and Gomorrah? Just living however we want to live. Unbridled lives. Or are they like Lot? Maybe not partaking in, in those things. And at least, at, at the very least, that their, that their souls, that the, their, their, their insides are, are vexed, worn down by the sinfulness of the world, tormented by the ungodliness that surrounds them. So God knew how to save Lot. And I think there's a third example. And you won't find it here. In the verses. But I think there is a third example of proof that God knows how to save. Because I think that if you are saved here today, 
I think you are a living example that God knows how to save. I am a living example that God knows how to save. And if you are saved today, you too are that example. As Josh said this morning, salvation is a miracle of God. Perhaps the greatest miracle that God will ever perform. So if you are saved today, you are living proof that God knows how to save. Amen. And for me, that's, that's the one that, that hits me deep. I didn't know Noah. I can read about Noah. I didn't know Lot. I can read about Lot. I can study Lot. But I know me. And that one is so meaningful to me that God knew how to save even a wretched sinner like me. The Lord knows how to save. But that's not the only thing the Lord knows how to do. And we've got we've to get going. I made a promise to try to keep this short. And we're still on point number one. So let's see what we can do here. The Lord also knows how to judge. God has also not forgotten how to punish the ungodly. Back to verse number nine. It says, The Lord knoweth how to deliver the godly out of temptation, and the Lord also knows how to reserve the unjust unto the day of judgment to be punished. So God also knows how to judge. Uh, the word he used here is reserve. It's an interesting word. It means to, to watch over, to guard, to keep, to preserve. As I was looking in the New Testament, when this word was used, it's actually used four times in John 17. Now, I hope you know what John 17 is. John 17 is the high priestly prayer of, of Christ. And I don't have time to fully explain it to you unless you've got about six hours. Um, you could preach a whole sermon series on, on John 17, and we uh, Josh has before, but we should probably revisit that. But it's another time and another place. But, but really what we have in, in John 17, it's, it's a remarkable chapter in the Bible. You have this inner Trinitarian conversation happening between the Father and between the Son. And, and, and uh, the summary here is uh, God the Father is saying to God the Son that I have given you these people to redeem. And, and God the Son says, I am, I am taking these people and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go to the cross and I'm going to die for these people and I'm going to save these people. And there's a lot of great teaching in John 17 about eternal security. So we get a lot around eternal security from John 17. So it's not surprising that this word to keep and to preserve is found in John 17. But I think it also teaches us a lot about God's judgment. And stay with me for a second. Just as believers have certainty of salvation. So do unbelievers have certainty of judgment. Right? If we are so sure of our salvation, we should be equally sure that God will judge the unbelievers, the unrighteous. They are like sitting on death row. Judgment is certain and judgment is coming. And it calls them here the unjust, the unrighteous, the wicked, the world. All of those who are not godly. Right? The first half of verse 9 says the godly. Second half says the unjust or the ungodly. On down in verse number 10, we'll talk about this next week. It, it describes them a little bit. 
It says chiefly them that walk after the flesh. Living after the flesh. Living after the world. Living after their sinful desires. In the lusts of, of uncleanness and sinfulness. And the last little bit, I need to study this one to figure out what we're going to do with this next one. And despise government. It's interestingly placed. Don't have an answer for you this week. Come back next week. We'll figure that one out together. But they're the unrighteous. They're the wicked. That's who, who God is, is reserving for, for judgment. That's who will not enter into the kingdom of God, right? Isn't that what 1 Corinthians 6, 9 tells us? Know ye not that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? Be not deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor abusers of themselves with mankind. Those are the people that will not enter the kingdom of God. Those are the people that God is reserving for the day of judgment to be punished. God knows how to judge the wicked. And God speaks of this day of judgment here. You see, we have punishment today for evil, right? But, but it's not perfect. I mean, we have punishment in the United States for evil. We have a judicial system in the United States. But it's not perfect. Even in the church, we have church discipline. But it's not perfect. Even if you die today, you, without Christ, you go to hell. But one day, there will be a final judgment. One day, there will be a time when God's patience and God's long-suffering will end. There will be a time when God's grace and when God's mercy are no longer offered. There will be a time when God's final verdict will be rendered. When believers will spend eternity with God and unbelievers will spend eternity separated from God in the lake of fire. And you say, well, this seems kind of harsh. No, no, no. We need a God that knows how to punish the unrighteous. And let me tell you why. Because when persecution comes, you will be wronged. I want you to get that. You will be mistreated. You will be unfairly treated. You will be ostracized. You maybe even will be physically abused, persecuted. Right? We, I think we have a low... A uh, small understanding of what persecution really is today. We think that if somebody says something mean on Facebook to us, that we are being persecuted. No, the early church, they understood persecution. People were hunting them down and killing them. When that type of persecution comes, when people are wronging you, when you find yourself asking, where is God's justice? That is when you need a God who knows how to punish the unrighteous. You need a God who is just and who knows how to make all things right. I want to tell you, the God of the Bible, He is just. And He will render judgment. The Lord knows how to reserve the unjust until the day of judgment to be punished. You don't believe me? He's done it before. He gives us some examples. Again, I'll try to be quick with this. We covered them last, last week, but the first example is the angels. When, when, when the angels, and again, last week I talked about the, the debate here on, on whether is this, you know, the, the, the original um, casting out of the angels uh, out of heaven, or, or is this the angels commingling with the, um, the 
the, the daughters of, of man. And, and again, I, I probably lean more toward the first one. Um, but it says in verse number 4, For if God spared not the angels that sinned, but cast them down to hell, and delivered them into the chains of darkness to be reserved unto the judgment. Um, so I think this is for those who think that God wouldn't punish those whom He created. All right, Even the angels are not a, exempt from the judgment of God. Now I think it's interesting, God did not make a provision to save the angels. Right, we in, in the other examples that we'll go through here, Noah, you know, Sodom and Gomorrah, uh, God was long-suffering, and God was merciful, and God was gracious there, even when He didn't have to be. Think about the angels; they sinned against God once, cast into hell. That's what it says there. Cast them down into the hell, deliver them into chains of darkness to be reserved unto judgment. To be reserved until the final day of judgment. One strike and you're out. God is just in doing that. He is right in doing that. Example number two. The old world, so the world of Noah. Again, he brought the flood upon the world. They were lacking in in fear. They were lacking in reverence of God. Full of sin, full of wickedness, doing whatever they wanted to do. They probably thought that, oh, well, God won't punish the whole world. I'm just like everybody else in the world. No, he's just crazy building that giant boat. But everybody else, I'm, I'm probably, you know, I'm better than the rest of them. That's what they thought. And God brought upon judgment, the flood, destruction. And then the third example here, again, Sodom and Gomorrah. It turned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah into ashes. Condemned them. You say, ah, you know, how bad is God's judgment really going to be? Again, here, like I said last week, it was sudden. It was final. You know, Sodom and Gomorrah, they probably didn't have a preacher like Noah. I mean, they had Lot. I think Lot was probably more... Um, I don't think Lot was probably as outspoken as, as Noah was. Um, but still yet, they sinned, they broke God's law, and God brought upon them condemnation. He brought upon them the punishment that they deserved. God knows how to judge. Amen. And it is a righteous judgment. Right? When, 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 when we judge and when we try to make things right, our judgments are often unrighteous. But God's judgment is right because it goes back to His very core, His very being, who He is. He is righteous and He will render a righteous judgment. Because at the end of the day, God knows your heart. I think that's wonderful news for the righteous, that God knows your heart, but it's terrible news for the unrighteous. For the righteous, He sees even like Lot, your inward hatred of sin. He sees your yearning for righteousness. A pastor, he sees your toils that no one else sees. God looks at the heart. But for the unrighteous, this is frightening. This is terrible. Because God sees the sin that you try to hide from the rest of the world. He sees what you truly desire in your heart. God knows how to judge. 
He knows how to make things right in the end. And He will make things right in the end. He's done it before. He'll do it again. God knows how to judge. So wrapping this up here. Make good time. Make good time. The Lord knows how to save. And the Lord knows how to judge. We need to know that. We need to believe that. We need to rely on that. It's such wonderful news for Christians today. The Lord knows how to save. And the Lord knows how to judge. The God knows how. Not the world. Right? I think there's too many people who are looking to the world for salvation. Looking to the world for hope. Don't hope in the world. Hope in God. He knows how to save. No one else. Not the world. Not your fellow man. You don't know how to save. You don't know how to make yourself right. You don't know how to save yourself from punishment or from destruction in the end. But God does. And that's great news for us. We need to know who. We need to know who to turn to. Who to put our hope in for salvation. It's God and God alone. So do not grow weary, Christian. The Lord knows how. No matter how bad things may get, God will save and God will judge. I think that's, that's just great. But this is terrifying news for the unrighteous. Uh, this, should, this should cause you, if you're not saved today, this should cause you to tremble. Because the Lord knows how to save and the Lord knows how to judge. God knows how to judge. And you are the target. If you are not saved, you are the target of that judgment. I said it before. He's done it once. He will do it again. He knows how to do it. And He has the experience in doing so. God knows how to judge. That, could, that should cause us to, to shake. Right, like, like Jonathan Edwards preaching sinners in the hands of an angry God. Sinners in the hands of a God who knows how and is experienced in executing judgment. But there is still hope today. Amen. Today is not that, verse 9, the day of judgment for punishment. Today is not that day yet. It could be tomorrow. It could be today before... You know, the end of the day. I don't know when that day is, but we're not there just yet. Heard a quote this week from Alistair Begg. God's judgment is inevitable, but it is not inescapable. That is the good news for today. That yes, God knows how to judge. Yes, God is experienced in, in judging. Yes, His judgment is inevitable, but it is not inescapable. For today salvation is still offered. So I would beg you today, look to the one who knows how to save. He has the knowledge of how to save. He has the experience in saving. He's never met a sinner too far gone to save. He's never turned one away that came to him in faith. The Lord knows how to save. So if you don't know him today, I beg you, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved today. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we we thank you for just a remarkable passage of Scripture. 
um, and, and such comfort for our souls, uh, knowing that, God, you know how to save and you know how to judge. God, I pray that you would never let us forget these glorious truths, that you would impress them upon our hearts and that we would remember them forever. So God, we thank you for this passage. We thank you for our time here this evening. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.